Welcome back to the DC Yoga Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Parkinson, and today we have with us Claire Kelly. Uh, Claire is a multidisciplinary guide for the mind, body, and the natural world. She has a unique talent for combining science, the natural environment, and ancient wisdom traditions to offer clients skills to thrive, regardless of their circumstances. She definitely bridges the worlds of the mystical and the pragmatic. She has graduate degrees in the health, in health sciences, thousands of hours training in yoga, meditation, and Pilates, and is a specialist in Pilates-based exercise for neurological conditions. She's a certified nature and forest therapy guide, as well as an advisory board member for the Association of Nature and Forest Therapy Guides and Programs. Welcome to the show, Claire. Thanks for having me. Yeah. It's great to be here. It's good to see you. Thanks. Um, so tell us a little bit about uh, the beginning. We always start with the beginning with my guests. So how did you find yoga? My or how did it find you? Oh, yeah. My mystical, magical journey to yoga involved me being an incredibly awkward teenager <laughs> and a Denise Austin DVD that I bought at Target. Yeah. And I bought it at the same time I got a Jennifer Kreese DVD. Um, they were just right next to each other in Target. And I didn't know that I was going for yoga and Pilates. I just wanted to move and this was the way that movement had been marketed to me and so the marketing worked um denise austin yeah she was in one of those high cut leotards with the pantyhose yeah. doing yoga totally hot yeah totally it was amazing hot. yeah and i actually i learned recently that she lives i think in potomac and i want to find her Are and you just kidding me? thank really? her because you know it, it's not an expected journey to yoga yeah. i think people hear what's your journey to yoga and don't expect a DVD from Target. Yeah. I mean, you'd be surprised. There's, in my experience, a lot of people whose first exposure was through, you know, DVDs and now through YouTube, right? Mm -hmm. They watch it online and they're like, what is this yoga stuff? And so they have to, don't have to go through the embarrassment of going into a studio to do it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And what that has given me is a lot of empathy for however people make the journey is how they're making the journey. And that's fantastic. I'm glad you're here. And I'll help guide you along it the best I can. Now, this was actually like a yoga DVD from Denise Austin, or was it like a yeah. fitness? DVD? It was a yoga DVD. Yoga DVD, yeah. Wow. Yeah. I would love to have Denise. And Denise, if you're listening, come into the show and tell us about yoga. That would be amazing. Fantastic, right? And everything else and where she is in the uh, world of movement. Unbelievable, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so you did the yoga DVD. Were you like, all right, or why did you do the yoga DVD, I guess? Start there. Um, Because yoga cures everything. Right. Of yeah. course, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, now, you know, having done this for about 20 years, uh, I know that that's not true, but it's sold to us as this is, and even back then, this is the late 90s, um, it's, it was sold to me as this is the thing that's going to make you better. And I was an extraordinarily traumatized teenager and um, incredibly awkward. I think I said that. Mm -hmm. It can't be emphasized enough how awkward I was. And I thought that this would be the path to something different, something better. Um, yeah. Yeah. So yoga as the, what the cool kids do. I think so. Um, and it came alongside with Pilates. So I've never had these two disciplines really separated out from each other, yeah. which has been really interesting because it's something I've always taken for granted. Um, my body took to yoga very well. I'm hypermobile. I have joint hypermobility syndrome, Ehlers-Danlos. And, so I found very quickly that yoga was not a problem for me. Getting into these very flexible end of range of motion shapes, I didn't mm -hmm. know that's what they were at the time, but I could bend that way and it was no problem. And having the Pilates at the same time that demanded a lot of strength, 
I didn't even know it at the time that that was the things, those were the things that I would need to balance each other out to be healthy mm -hmm. and balanced. Um, I think so often I've been given the message that yoga is a complete system. And for me, it finding union involved bringing together a number of systems in a way that worked for me. Mm -hmm. Do you use a lot of quote unquote Pilates stuff in your yoga classes? All the time. All the, All time. the time. Yeah, I got called on it in class yesterday. What? Um, we were working up to an arm balance and doing stealing a little bit from the Pilates side series, from the mat side series, and somebody just yelled out in the middle, Claire, this is Pilates. And I was like, yeah, you're right, but we're going to an arm balance. And yeah. if you have your intention, you're still doing yoga, breathe. Exactly. Mm, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, uh, I'm, a, I'm a Pilates teacher as well. And um, I, always, um, I always teach, it's weird, when I first started teaching yoga, um, I really had no, I mean, I had body awareness, but no idea like what certain muscles did and what joints did and all of that. You know, I was just an athlete. And for me, like the harder I tried and the more forceful I was with anything, like the better results, like I thought I was getting. Um, and I tried the same thing with yoga and it just did not work that way. Mm -hmm. Um, and so when I started doing yoga and I slowed things down and, um, it really informed my body of what I was doing like each of the little subtle movements became uh, so much more powerful um, than just, you know, doing squats or running as fast as I can or swimming just like a maniac, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and uh, so I try to do it as much as I can in my classes, try to add the Pilates, not so much like the sideline series, um, but telling people to, training people and teaching people how to use their core, for example, in like a prayer twist. Right, how to use your core to twist instead of just locking your elbow out there and twisting the shit out of your lower back. Yeah. Right. So doing little things like that, I really, I really think is is really essential to a um, a healthy, you know, yoga practice. Yeah. No, absolutely, and giving people that sense of body awareness and what I I think one of my favorite parts of teaching is giving people, and this is why I say I'm a guide really more than teacher is I want people to discover these moments and how to do them on their own, how to find it for themselves. So rather than me saying, put this here, put this here, put this here and breathe, great, you're doing yoga, is to give them ways to have this self-exploration for how it's gonna work inside their body and how they're gonna come into that relationship. Um, you know, for a long time, I could perform the the yoga. And when I say the yoga, I mean, the spiritual aspects of yoga just as much as I could perform the the acrobatics of yoga and but I wasn't still I still wasn't doing yoga I was simply performing it um, so I could perform the look of meditation right. I could perform the actions of the yamas and niniyamas but they weren't something that was still like intrinsic into me and weirdly enough it came I think through other movements and moving my body in other ways that were outside of yoga lineages um, where I found a connection where I found to back off where I found nonviolence, where I found um, not comparing and so it's interesting to me how many different ways we can find and practice the tenets rather than just performing them mm -hmm. And you think that had a little bit to do with the fact that you were so naturally flexible? In other words, this was, it was easier for you, and so you're sort of like, what's the, what's the point to all this? Like, yeah, of course I can twist my body into a pretzel. Like, what else? I think partly that, and one of the weird things that comes that's part and parcel of hypermobility that um, 
a lot of people aren't unaware are unaware of is that anxiety comes along with it as a biological mechanism. So because of the stretchiness of our veins, people with hypermobility, our blood will tend to pool up, which mm. jacks up our adrenaline. So at any point in time, if you took the same me who had more collagen holding me together, she would have less adrenaline running through her at any given point than I have running through me. Interesting. So learning how to work with that adrenaline um, for a long time, it was pathologized. And sure, I come with, you know, baggage, lots of baggage from that, you know, I've got a great therapist, but the biological mechanism of that anxiety or that fast running adrenaline is mm. something that wasn't well explained to me for a long time. And I need physical means to work through that just as much as I mean need the emotional and spiritual means to work through yeah. that. So did you, did you fall in love with yoga right away? Was this like, all right, now I've got to go to a studio or did you just do the DVD for a couple of years? Like how did, how did, how did from that first step of watching the DVD, how did it evolve from there? Oh gosh, I'm thinking back for a long time. It was just me and the DVD. I was really embarrassed to move in front of other people. Um, uh, I was not a very well coordinated person. And to this day, if you instruct me in doing things, I'm much less adept at doing that than if I instruct you. <laughs> um, and then somewhere in college, I decided to do teacher training, um, which was, again, a much more anatomy-based program. And this was many years ago. I've actually forgotten a lot of that program. Um, but I kept my practice pretty private until really the mid-2000s. Um, I'd actually been doing a lot of rock climbing and um, broke my back, as one does rock climbing, um, or as one is very awkward, which I am. Um, I've broken my back three times. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, so once I came out of that injury, going through PT and kind of discovering all, all of this stuff about hypermobility that hadn't, nobody's ever well put it together for me as one provider. It's things that I've had to put together myself. Um, so working through all these Aren't things. Aren't doctors annoying that way? Oh, so um, and I say that with a lot of love and I work with of a lot course, of doctors. Of so course. I love you all, but yes, you annoy me. Um <laughs> But putting that together, and then I started going to a studio, um, and I really didn't come fully back to practicing yoga in a community setting really till probably 2006 or so. Um, and then, then it became a community experience for me um, when I did feel confident enough to start taking this out, to be with other people, to share it around other people. Um, and at the same time, it was... Uh, very anxiety-provoking. Wow. Um, I think I spent my first three years working in a studio environment, spending the entire class comparing myself to every single other person in that class. Um, it took me years to skip a vinyasa. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's a really advanced form of yoga when I see people who have that competency to know this one's not for me because mm -hmm. I didn't have that competency for a long time. Yeah, I love it when I see a student drop into child's pose in the middle of class. Oh, it's magical. You know? I, I get really excited when I see yeah. my students doing something that's different from what I'm cueing. You know, as long as it's not disruptive to the room, um, I get really excited because I know that this person is learning the skills that they need to take care of what is working for them in the body that they're in today. Mm -hmm. And I can't teach that. All I can do is be a guide for people in that space and say, awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's like they've, they've, whatever you've 
guided them towards, they've taken it to a next step that feels natural to them, right? That seems um, like, yeah, like I'm here, but I could go here. And you kind of want to, you definitely want to, you know, foster that in your students, right? It reminds me of the story of Kundin, which for whom Kundini Asa uh, is named after, and Siddhartha, and how Kundin took Siddhartha on, Siddhartha who became the Buddha, mm-hmm. took Kundin took on Siddhartha as his student, and after some time and some instruction, he saw that Siddhartha had gained more skills and competency, whatever we're calling it, um, and he said, it's time for you to become the teacher now. Um, mm-hmm. You've surpassed what I can offer you, and for me, that's a sign of, of great success as a teacher. If you are, have gained more than I can show you, I get really excited about yeah. that. So you didn't. So you didn't actually teach right out of teacher training. You just did that. You trained to learn more about yoga. Yeah, I I taught a little bit in college, but nobody really knew what it was at the time. Right. Um, and I was trying. You know, I was trying to put together a whole lot of things that didn't make sense. Remember Tybo? Yeah, of course. Like Billy uh, Blanks. Yeah, Billy Blanks was amazing. Yeah. There's a lot of yoga in Billy Blanks. Yeah. You know, he was all about reaching for your higher power. You know what I mean? Like the whole LA scene, like I think they're all like, I mean, they're all yogis out there, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, in one form or another, I mean, yoga has been so big out there for so many years that you can't help be touched by it no matter who you are, right? If you're in that kind of celebrity scene. Yeah. So the challenge of that, though, is that we, s- as we start to get a bigger breadth of what movement serves people then the challenge becomes this question that i think everybody asks at some point of wait is this really yoga and what does count as yoga Mm -hmm. yeah no i was uh before somebody sends it to me on on facebook don't send this to me on facebook if you're listening the yoga that what did i see this morning it was the it was the rage yoga rage yoga so during class you're encouraged to just shout out things that make you angry like to get your anger out in the middle of class um, and you can take beer breaks during the class and afterwards everybody drinks beer um, and so don't send this to me that's not yoga please don't <laughs> I think <laughs> like I in my opinion it's not so <laughs> I think that if people are finding their yoga in that space great I will never be in that class and I've had a friend who's invited me to something called the class where you scream the whole time. And I'm like, that was half my childhood. I don't need that class. I go to therapy. That's you know, great if that's what's finding it for you. But that would be way too traumatizing yeah. for me. Yeah, um, like giving in to like your urges and like, like that's all right, giving in is maybe the wrong term. Um, uh, rage and your urges and desires these are things that are distractions of the mind to me. Do you think? I do. Okay, we're I gonna do. talk. I don't think you. I don't think you like. I. I don't think I can focus, like yelling, unless I were to yell for like ten minutes straight, like like at the top of my lungs, and I don't even think that's possible. Like I would have to focus myself on just yelling and nothing else, and I think that would be completely stress-inducing. It would in no way calm my mind. Well, it is stress-inducing, so now the scientist in me is sort of like popping up, yeah. and this is a lot of, of the heart of what I teach, is, I is trying to combine the science, the physician and the metaphysician. Um, one of the things that I work with people one-on-one is to start to know, wait, why do we have emotions, or what is this particular emotion useful for? So anger is a really interesting one to get into, because a lot of us don't have a great relationship with anger, 
And anger can be so useful. Um, I believe that anger tells us about our boundaries. As soon as you're angry, somebody's it's because somebody or something has violated your boundaries. And rage, for me, is a sense that these boundaries have been violated and I don't have the coping mechanisms to know how to restore those boundaries. And if I then have that capacity, that emotional granularity to be able to say, okay, wait, I'm, I'm furious right now and I need, to be, I need to name what this is. What am I angry about? What boundaries have been violated? Then I have the opportunity to come into that svadhyaya, that self-inquiry to know, what do I need here to get back to calm the stress? Um, stress isn't always a bad thing. Um, it's a biological response. And knowing how to work with it, I think, can be as useful as trying to deny it. And, you know, here's the ex-Catholic in me. I spent so much mm -hmm. of my childhood um, deeply Catholic, devoutly Catholic. So I went to Opus Dei school. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So that's if you've the ever serious shit right there. Yeah. If you've ever read a Dan Brown book. Yeah, of course. Um, that's that's the kind of school that Did I went to. Did they give out to. hair shirts on the first day? They, they <laughs> made it seem a little more... Um, it's not quite as uh, thrilling as a Dan Brown right, book, of course. Um, but man, there's a lot of rosaries and there's a lot of what's wrong with you. There's a lot of what's impure about you. And I don't know where these ideas of impurity or you know, even the concept of sin, which gets translated in, in, in yoga world in its own ways. And we carry, I think, our own Western world ideas, uh, um, our ethics into trying to define what is pure, but what if we were all intrinsically good in our own way and our work was to kind of come back to how we can be good to one another, mm -hmm. how we can be good to the more than human world? Yeah, I think um, one of the earliest, and this is a very, um, I would say a very American uh, concept, um, which is the transcendentalists, right? Emerson and Thoreau um, uh, would they especially espoused was that we don't start with original sin. We actually start as pure people. We start with goodness. We don't start as badness. Um, and uh, I think that's a, it, it's a, it's a totally, um, for people who have the Judeo-Christian like background, um, it's sort of mind-blowing, mm -hmm. like in a lot of ways. And I think, I think there's a lot there um, that we can embrace going to put on my nationalist hat right now there's a lot of things we can embrace there um, about being american and it is one of the kind of the contributions um to philosophy um that, that, that they gave us and i think i think there's it, it there is some evidence to suggest that they didn't come up with that either that they got that actually from um from um, um from vedanta they actually they studied the the text and they knew that this is the way that vedanta in some ways um uh, also has this idea in it Mm -hmm. which I think is really cool. Um, one of, so my main teacher, um, people in D.C. will remember him as Greg Marzullo. His married yeah. name is Greg Casal. Um, hi, Greg, if you're listening, I love you. Um, so he and I talk all the time about Walt Whitman, who yeah. is sort of the original tantrika, tantrika or whatever the masculine version of that is. I think he wouldn't worry about it too much. <laughs> um but that these ideas that do come out of Tantra, and this is where I'm starting to run out of where you know my expertise or knowledge comes in, um, but that the idea is that you already are enlightened. What 
do you need to do to return to that enlightenment? Exactly. To shed ideas of rigidity rigidity and dogma of what is pure, because that's going to be very different from person to person. And where that's been challenging for me as a woman has been my whole life I've been conditioned to know that I'm most valuable as a woman if I'm pure. Well, that's done a lot of harm for me when I've done very normal human things that then deviate from that purity and then suddenly I'm a deviant. And, you know, that's stuff I'll work out with my therapist. But as a teacher, I want people to... One of the things I love about not being a diagnostician, I could have definitely gone the route of being a PT, of being a doctor, Mm -hmm. and I work with PTs and doctors all the time, and I'm really grateful for them. My big freedom as a teacher is that uh, when you're in front of me as my student or my client, I get to see you as whole with your whole catalog of imperfections. Mm -hmm. And how often do we go to a provider, a teacher, somebody, for lack of a better word, who's not there to fix us, which isn't to say that I'm not grateful. I'm very grateful for those who have their role in society for curing because we need that as well. Mm -hmm. But I wish there were more of a role for us to see this great freedom as yoga teachers, as providers, that what we can do is we can see this person in front of us as whole. Yeah. No, I think that's beautiful. I don't, one of my own teachings, one of the things I always try to get my students to see is um, that there's nothing wrong with them. It's challenging. Like, like, like it sounds very simple. Um, and a lot of my teaching is very simple. Uh, and I like to say simple doesn't always mean it's easy. Usually but the opposite. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, that, you know, I'm not trying to make people more flexible in my class. I'm not trying to make people strong in my class. Those are all byproducts. Yeah, if you come to my class every day, you're certainly going to get more flexible. You're certainly going to get stronger. Um, But what I want to instill is that you should come to my class to realize that nothing's wrong with you. Mm -hmm. To let go of all that other stuff, right? Because it's you who does it, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, certainly society can be the catalyst for it. But you, like, we all make our more problems for ourselves than we actually have. Oh, that's true. I'm, vi- I'm, you know, and if I'm and an expert in any one area, that <laughs> might be it. <laughs> one of the things that I think, I, I, offering people the space to explore within themselves and also the community aspect of it. So personally, one of the things, so from the world of medical anthropology, there's this term normative discontent. Everybody feels crappy about their bodies. Um, Barbara Miller, my uh, medical anthropology professor in grad school, once curiously said, I wonder if there's anyone in any culture anywhere who's not trying to change their body. I think we were talking about ritual scarification. Um, And we tend to think this is a Western concept that we have poor body image, and it turns out to be pretty universal. So for my own body image, I've gone through all kinds of things for it, but nothing for me has done better things for my body image than seeing a class full of different bodies, Mm -hmm. different colors, all doing amazing things. Um, You know, one of my students is genderqueer and trans and comes in in their crop top, and 
they don't have the body that's going to go on the front of yoga journal, which is sad to me. And once I saw them wearing crop tops, I, I was really grateful because <laughs> I they looked great and fantastic and they owned it. And I wanted to carry some of that confidence, too. And so they inspired me. And so mm -hmm. I really like that back and forth of me getting to learn from the collective just as much as I'm imparting any wisdom onto them. But so that it becomes as much the wisdom of the whole as the wisdom of any one person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so when you, so you went to college in D.C.? Not in D.C. No. Northern Wisconsin. Northern Wisconsin. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Tiny liberal arts school that's mostly a music conservatory. Is there any other kind of liberal arts school? <laughs> Good <No>. question. <laughs> yeah, this was 1,200 people. So yeah. going from the last two years of high school, I went to a giant John Hughes-type high school uh. in um, the Chicago suburbs and then went to this tiny, That's so cool. You went to Shermer High. Basically, you went yeah. To Shermer High. That's Glenbrook, so cool. Glenbrook South, shout out right yeah. there. Um, <laughs> Ferris Bueller's Day Off was actually filmed at Glenbrook North. That's so, so cool. Yeah. Um, so going from that to northern Wisconsin, I actually, before I went to undergrad, I had not heard the northern Wisconsin accent, mm -hmm. and I thought they were making it up. Right. Yeah. They're not. No. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. So I did undergrad there and then got out of Dodge as yeah. quickly as possible. Northern Wisconsin, for its many charms, is not my place. So wha wha how did that go over, like teaching yoga in northern Wisconsin? Barely. 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 It wasn't a thing that we were there for. And I wasn't really in any sort of position to really take on teaching. Um, I was a musician trying to figure out how to be not a musician, as most many people figure out. Just because you're somewhat competent at making music doesn't mean that you'll make a career out of it, right. which I suppose there's a parallel to teaching yoga. I mean, right? listen, the music business is full of people who are barely competent to be a music star, and they are, so... I mean, I think that th there's th parallels th th there to the yeah, world th of th teaching <laughs> yoga. <laughs> um, um, so, yeah, I didn't do a lot there. So then I moved to D.C., and there my teaching was really restricted to, you know, showing my climbing buddies mm -hmm. things that were just, you know, in between climbs, um, outside doing fun, and you're already making ridiculous shapes when you're rock climbing. So it was just another add-on. Do you remember any? Do you remember any of the first two hundred hour training that you did? Like, how was it? Like, what I'm trying to get, I try to get at is like, I, I assume you participate in two hundred hours at some point since then, right? Like, yeah, at like, least. or at least you know how they are structured today. Mm -hmm. Like, like, what was it the same back then? Like, how was it? How was it structured back then? Mine was a lot of anatomy, um, a lot of the yamas and the niyamas. Um, so going into the principles and a lot of the sutras, we read the Bhagavad Gita. Oh yeah. um, so a lot of the philosophy, but it wasn't quite so um, this is the yoga so much as it was introduced as here are concepts that have been passed down that you might take forward. It was a lot that more That sounds really cool. Yeah. That sounds really cool, it yeah. Well, so it was surprising to me to come to D.C. and find a lot more rigidity and a lot more dogma around this is what the yoga is. And yeah, all the different styles. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, what what were you what were they teaching when you first came to D.C.? Was it was it kind of a yeah? Tell us what kind of yoga you found when you got here. Um, vinyasa flow. 
Um, it's sort of always been um, a place where I've found that my body moves well in, um, with the caveat that I have to do a lot of other cross training to be available for vinyasa. Mm-hmm. Um, I practiced Ashtanga for a while, uh, a very similar journey where I practiced it largely on my own. Um, and I would go to Gal Harris's class. Mm-hmm. Um, she's a fantastic teacher. And then for a while, I started to do Ashtanga every day, and it did not take very long for my body to say, you cannot do yeah, this I every bet. day. This might be for other people, that, but this is not for your body for every day. Um, so, you know, maybe Ashtanga once every, you know, fifth day for me. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, I can't practice it. Um, so, you know, I've, I've seen the... I hate to call them trends. The different lineages come through. Um, for a while, um, prana flow was a big thing. And, mm-hmm. you know, that, I love me some prana flow. And that was one very quickly that my body said, if you do this, you will literally fall apart. Yeah, your hips will fall out of there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, so that that got taken out. Jiva Mukti, um, which was... I enjoyed it for a bit until it became too much of a simulacrum of Catholicism. Um, And so I've never really spent, I've spent time in these different lineages and none of them has ever felt home for me. The place that's always felt like home has been something that's beyond lineage. Mm -hmm. Um, That's something that's a synthesis. Yeah, of course. Mm -hmm. When did you start uh, doing Pilates? When did you start uh, getting into teaching Pilates? Um, so Pilates came, uh, the same route through the yeah. DVD, um, Jennifer Kreese. Um, I love the movements right away. And so I started going to a Pilates class with Mariska Breland, who at the time was developing her method of mm-hmm. Pilates, Fuse Pilates. Yeah. And, um, it just felt so good in my body, um, to have that control um, so often we're told to let go. And the thing that my hypermobile, one of the things my body is already very good at doing is letting it's go. Letting go yeah. I don't need to let go. I need to find how to control the movements. Um, yeah. You can almost think of it like water. Water doesn't do well. You know, if we took these water glasses and tipped them over, they'd be all over the table. They mm-hmm. do well when they know their structure and their boundaries. Yeah. So that's always been a bigger um, thing for me. So, Mariska then, um, as she was developing this method of Pilates, uh, she invited me to do the first teacher training with her and be involved with that. And eventually she opened her own studio and I've been with them ever since. And what I loved about what she did with Fuse Pilates is that it's a similar thing to what I've been saying is she blended a fuse, why it's called fuse, Mm -hmm. of different things. And she taught us anatomy really well. So that was a fundamental part of our teacher training. Our mat training was really long um, over the course of, I think, 12 weeks, which is a lot longer than... 12 weeks just for mat? Yeah. Wow. Because we're learning anatomy and we're learning the classical sequence. So for Pilates as well as yoga, there's actually a classical sequence. Mm -hmm. And then learning why things move the way that they move so that then we know how to create freedom around that and to create create creative sequences around that that depart from it while they're still c- giving structure mm-hmm. and order and still staying somewhat true to the Pilates method. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Did you ever get into any of the other things? Did you ever get like group fitness certified or did you ever get like cycle certified or anything like that? Oh, you're smiling. Mm-hmm. Hold on, I'm going to let you drink your water first, then you can tell us. Yeah, so step aerobics. Oh man, oh step yeah. aerobics was my jam. So a funny story about step aerobics. So I went to this tiny liberal arts college mm-hmm. where um, we were highly encouraged and well subsidized to study abroad. And so for one of my majors, um, I had two majors in college, uh, no, three majors and two degrees. Um, and I guess there's not a lot to do in northern Wisconsin. There's really not. It's, uh, it's a lot of snow. Um, and also I tend to not, focus is not my strong suit. Right. I just want to do all the things all the time. Right. Um, right. So I had grown up speaking French and got into a study abroad to speak French. And so um, for this linguistics major that I had, anthropological linguistics, um, I had to take on a second language. Well, we had trimesters, 10-week terms. Mm-hmm. So I took 10 weeks of Spanish and declared myself ready to live abroad speaking Spanish mm-hmm. in Costa Rica. So I went down to Costa Rica. Basically, at that point, I was speaking French with a Spanish accent and passing it off. Um, so I had been able to do step aerobics for a while and knew it. Uh, I can't remember if it was before or after that that I'd been certified. But anyway, I was competent at this point in doing step aerobics. And so I went to a class at the La Universidad de uh, uh, Costa Rica. And um, they the class is all in Spanish, but I'm keeping up the best that I can. Ale, 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 go, 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 push, push, push. And th- after class, the instructor came up to me and said, you seem like you know what you're doing. This class. And I was like, okay. Showed up to this other class. It was really hard. Okay. Tried to keep up, tried to learn the best I could. And then... So kept going to this class, which seemed to be a very regular group of people, and they were really into it. Great. It was fun. Uh, One day, the instructor came with a full-body unitard, sequined unitard, and (laughs) told me to try it on, and everybody else was trying on theirs. Um, And I still wasn't 100% sure what was going on, and they told me that the (laughs) unitard was for the... Okay, didn't really cross my mind to ask more questions. It might have, but I'm not sure that I had the vocabulary <laughs> to right. ask more questions. Um, and so then one day they told me to bring my passport for the little little, and finally it was time to start asking some questions. Yeah. And what had happened was I had inadvertently landed on the Costa Rican national aerobics team, <laughs> <laughs> and we were going to go and compete in Panama. Um, That's amazing. Yeah. Did so you go and compete in Panama? I didn't. We kicked their ass. That's so great. amazing. Um, and I was I'm like, please s- tell me you went to Panama and did this. This is so. This is a great story. Yeah, I think I actually ended up getting a D in the class that I was <laughs> supposed to be taking there. But um, you know, look where I am now. There you go. So you're so you are you're a medalist in in aerobics. You're a you're a you're a Costa Rican champion. I never thought of it. You're that a Costa way. Rican aerobics champion. Yeah, I suppose so. This yeah. was before YouTube and I'm very happy about that. You got to put that on the bio. Like the, you gave me this bio Claire and <laughs> believe me, that should be in the bio too. I think really <laughs> the major success of it was that they let me get away with wearing the sequined unitard. I'm very 
gangly. I, I look taller than I am because I'm just arms and legs. And so I'm very different from the body types that are down there. And it was very much a one of these things is not like the other situation. It was, it was, um, I am a medalist, I think, in being awkward. You know. And just owning it. Owning it, yeah. Showing up and trust trying to do the best I can. Yeah. Do you still do step aerobics? No, I can't do a whole lot of high impact stuff anymore. And I try to save that for the stuff that I want to do for building bone density. Mm -hmm. um, so trying to add in little plyometrics and things like that. Yeah. Um, I'm at an age where I started to realize, you know, my older clients are showing me the things that I want to actually start looking out for for myself and mm -hmm. building these into my own classes. Um, you know, I don't think at 34 we care about bone density, but I know when I am either an astronaut or you know, 60, I'm going to care about bone density, so might as well start now. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, so you have a you have a day job, or are you a full-time yoga Pilates person? I've got about nine different jobs that all fit into one career. Um, Very nice. So health guide, health educator. So I teach group classes, Pilates and yoga, and sort of mindful movement that incorporates in other aspects of patterning, um, neuroplasticity of strength building which we don't usually get in a pilates class or a yoga class we need that progressive overloading of we're just built to pick up heavy things and put them down mm -hmm. um i see private clients one-on-one -on -one, um for uh things that incorporate movement health behavior um working through neuroplasticity uh, and then I also do nature and forest therapy guiding. So taking people out to find a deeper connection to the more than human world in a very sensory and gentle way that's fundamentally different from hiking or a naturalist talk. Mm -hmm. um, so between all of those, I'm running around the city and hopefully making some sort of cohesive career out of it. Yeah, who cares? It's fun and you're doing it. Yeah. Yeah, I enjoy Cohesive it. Cohesive or not. Um, <laughs> I enjoy it and I don't know that I am one to say that other people should do this. It's I think it looks very glamorous from the outside and it's very unorganized from the inside. It all depends on what you put on your Instagram. It'll yeah. look glamorous if you want it to. Uh, I'm really over pretty Instagram profiles. Um, yeah. One of my projects lately that I've been trying to do is actually show more of my students on Instagram with their permission, of course. Yeah. Um, one of my big pet peeves is when people Instagram classes or I just go bonkers when people Instagram Shavasana. Mm -hmm. um, just don't do that, guys. It's it's people's nap time. Don't take pictures of people in nap time. Um, but I'm trying to show, you know, this all the amazing things that my students can do um, to have a better representation because I do get to see, I think this is one of the cool parts about teaching in D.C., my classes really do have this astonishing diversity to mm -hmm. them. Um, and I really enjoy that. Um, it's one of the things that I would really miss if I moved to another place. And so that's not well represented. Um, you can look at the whole controversy with the yoga journal cover and them splitting the covers with Jessamyn Stanley. Um, and so what I'm trying to hopefully show just a little bit is something different. On the surface, I look like the norm of somebody who represents the yoga world and I just and the movement world, and I just want there to be a bigger idea of who mm -hmm. movement belongs to. I mean, I think we're, we're making progress in that area. I hope so. At least in D.C., I hope so, yeah. Yeah. We live in a unique place. It surprises me. I forget 
how good we have it here until I go to other places and with all respect to other places um, mm -hmm. you know we have students who are very willing um, to, to try they tend to be very receptive uh, everybody's showing up it, it really is actually one of the great yoga cities mm -hmm. um, I just the quality of the teachers here is, is amazing the quality of the students I really love mm -hmm. yeah love it. where um, so you're teaching at Fuse mm -hmm. um, and you teach uh, you teach a past tense too mm -hmm. um, you teach a flow Mm -hmm. Where else? Anywhere else? Um, I'm actually starting this afternoon uh, with Yoga Works, yeah. um, former Tranquil Space, Very um, nice. which holds a really dear place in my heart. I did my uh, advanced teacher training there with Carol Collins. You did? You did 300 there? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very cool. With, uh, yeah, Carol Collins and Kevin Waldorf Cruz. Yeah. And that was great because it was actually like a liberal arts program for yoga. Um, they gave us a taste of lots of different things, which... Mm -hmm. um, I think going into that advanced training, I thought I would come out with a really clear idea of where I wanted to go, and I came out knowing the more, more confused than Yeah, the more <laughs> I know, the more I know I don't know that much. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's the that's the classic sign of a not only a curious person but a true student, right? Is that is that the more you know, the less certain you are about a lot of things. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think that's a good thing. Yeah, I mean, if anything, I'm a student of my own experience of my body and I'm just always so hungry to learn more. Mm -hmm. um, if I go a while without some sort of education or training or something, I get, it's it's just not good for my mental health. Having something to kind of give my nervous system to chew on, mm -hmm. um, I really enjoy that. And how many, um, how many classes a week are you teaching yoga versus Pilates? That depends week to week, um, because I also have a gig where I sub out at different federal agencies. Um, group classes, oh gosh, I can't even think of it about off the top of my head, but I think for a while I was doing the thing where you teach 12 to 15 yeah, classes. Yeah, I was about to ask you that. Did you ever do that where you did the 15 to 20, 25 classes? Yeah, my body and my nervous system very and my voice um, very quickly told me that that would not be the career yeah, the career tra trajectory for me. Um, that was where taking on private clients and diversifying what I teach became very important. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's um, I teach. I mean, I teach 15, 20 classes a week, but Pilates, yoga, group fitness classes. I mean, there's a whole bunch and I don't I don't demonstrate in any of them. I mean, I coach. Mm -hmm. So for me, um, if I had to teach actually 15 to 20 yoga classes a week, I would go fucking bonkers. <laughs> There's no way. I'm just too much of like an empath. Like I, I just I hold space for people, and holding holding space for thirty people, um, once a day, is enough. It's a like surprising amount of work. Like I, I I yeah I couldn't do it three times a day. I couldn't do it. I mean I've done it before. I've taught you know six six classes in a day once, and I remember it being so traumatizing that I said to myself, I'm never doing this again. I would <coughs> I would start to actually just run out of words at the end of really three group classes in any given day is my max and usually by the end of the third class I'm like I don't know just put a body part somewhere <laughs> great um, and I remember for a long time feeling a lot of guilt about this um, that especially because I also teach meditation as well and I would come home and you know you see on social media and you hear in all of these different trainings that people go home and they have their own self-care rituals and it seems like it should be meditation and turning on 
and lighting candles and mm-hmm. making sacred space. And I would come home and watch cartoons. Mm-hmm. And so I went to Greg about this. And he's like, oh, no, that's what my teacher does. Um, that's that's mm-hmm. the thing that you need when you're doing this work of holding sacred space. The last thing you need to go is do is go and take your job home, mm-hmm. which isn't to say that I don't have my own rituals of, of holding space for myself, but they look really different and they're... Um, they're very personal to me. I've worked them out so that they are a little different from what I teach. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I once, um, jokingly, I think this was last year, maybe it was the year before, my own when I I do my own yoga teacher training at Vita. Um, I think we had just done a we done a pretty deep weekend about, you know, meditation and, um, and I told people half jokingly at the end I was like, all right, go home and just watch the most violent thing you can possibly imagine on Netflix. And like my co-teacher looked at me and she was like, are you stupid? Like we just got this whole done this whole weekend of like looking inside and being compassionate. And I was and I was like, no, really, like y- you got to go back the other direction a little bit. Like you, you can't just like like you got to have a little bit of yang, like some kind of yang in there. It's well. So I love true crime. Like yeah. we could talk about serial killers for a while. Yeah. Fascinated by them. And I don't see that as a problem. I, I, I think there is that tempering out because the other part is, is that we still have to come and function in our current society. One of the most challenging um, aspects of that I've been through in any training program, when I went to do the initial part of my certification to become a nature and forest therapy guide, I took a month off and I road tripped around California and I went on a national park binge. Mm, yeah. It was amazing. I was immersed in nature every day. You know, I, I climbed half dome and then I would spend, you know, hours, you know, looking at, you know, a single leaf and considering these relationships and really feeling the land and letting the land guide me. Super amazing and profound. And then I came back to DC. And this was when Trump had been in office for, I don't know, five months or something. I was so ill-prepared to make that transition back that I just sat in bed and ate chocolate for probably two weeks. Self-medicating, yes. Yeah, and it wasn't depression um, because that chocolate was amazing. Right. Like I was just, I think the, the transition between those two spaces was too abrupt. And so I think we just need to be realistic that our yogis aren't in ashrams. They're not in monasteries. They're yeah. having to go out in one of the most challenging cities to navigate these yeah. days. Or as like I like to say is that, it, look, if you follow, you know, the yoga sutras, which were written down for monks, right? They're written down for people in ashrams, for people who are, you know, renunciates or people who are going out into the forest to, you know, do the work. Um, it's incredibly in my opinion, anyway, it would be incredibly easy to sit in an ashram where everything's peaceful and practice yoga. It gets incredibly hard to practice yoga in the middle of a city, mm-hmm. right? And that, for me, is is one of the reasons why I'll probably never go to an ashram because it is so hard to practice yoga and it is so rewarding if you can practice yoga in this city. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, if you can practice your own yoga, not just the asana, yeah, of course, backbending, whatever that. I'm talking about the real work of the yoga. If you can actually be, you know, still the movement of the mind stuff when you're walking to work, you know, in the metro, and if you can do that, then yeah, you're a powerful yogi. You know, yeah. anybody can kind of, in a way, anybody can kind of sit in the middle of the forest and like, you know, still the movements of their mind. You just have to become really quiet. It's not easy, but I'm saying it. That's that can be comparatively easier than you know having to sit on a busy metro when there's so much you know 
anger and emotion and swirling around you. Yeah. The Irish philosopher John O'Donohue put this very eloquently, and I think it's something to also keep in mind that a lot of the Eastern traditions, um, which we can sort of have an exoticization of them in our Western culture to say that everything's wrong with Western culture and everything's right with Eastern culture and they know so much. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a fetishism there that is just as harmful as any other sort of othering. Mm-hmm. One of the points that John O'Donohue made was that those of us who have grown up in pretty much any Western culture informed by Judaism, Islam, Christianity, all of those traditions are traditions of going outward, of community, um, the golden rule, mm-hmm. do unto others what you'd have do unto you, which is different from many of the Eastern traditions, say for one notable example, which I'll talk about in just a second, but the Eastern traditions tend to be going inward to a place of no thing, whereas the Western traditions sort of emphasize this going outward. Um, and I think having a healthy dose of respect for the own culture, our own culture that we've grown up in, to know how to navigate that is different. And so one of the big anomalies to that statement, that gross generalization, is Shintoism, where they do have this deep connection to the natural world and yeah. animism. Um, that is is fascinating and, and parallels a lot of other indigenous traditions, you know, Celtic tradition, Native American tradition, where they are having this very close relationship with the natural world, with the more than human world. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit more about, well, so there's a lot of things there that I want to go back to. I guess I'll go back to this one. You do teach a weekly, or you do teach meditation as well as a separate thing or... Like as a separate class, or you teach it as a part of the classes that you teach when you teach yoga? Right now, I don't have um, one specific meditation class that I'm teaching. And I, I've i gone a little away from that because actually for my life right now, meditation in the classical sense of sitting down and focusing, so mindfulness meditation and mm-hmm. um, mindfulness-based stress reduction, uh, which is sort of what I've trained in, um, that's not serving me right now in my life. Um, and there are many people who it's actually contraindicated for. Mm-hmm. Um, it's We tend to think of meditation as this panacea that if you do it, magically you'll feel better. And there's a lot of people who will sit down and when they're left alone with their own thoughts, their own thoughts will come up and be very cruel. Um, and it's actually not the place where you want to sit them down. Yeah. Um, so uh, for now, for now, right now in my life, I have a lot of respect for those who meditation is doing good things for. Will in my yoga classes will center a little bit. There's a little bit of just quiet and softening in every class that I teach. Every Pilates class that I teach has an end where there's just some moments of softness of quiet. Um, yeah, and so I think just being out loud about the fact that. You know, there have been points for me that meditation has been absolutely that place. And right now, for me, it's not something that is serving me well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And then tell us a little bit about the um, the forest bathing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this has been an interesting journey. Um, I've loved learning about the different lineages, but nothing has brought me to a place of connection deeper than starting to understand my own indigenous traditions. So I'm Irish. I grew up partly in Ireland. And um, going to the ways of my European ancestors 
um, and not in terms of any sort of dominance. Um, in fact, this is a lot of the parts of uh, European tradition that were snuffed out by that that dominance and that sort of like manifest destiny. But going back to those traditions has been really important for me. Um, and I didn't even know until I was. So these are like pre-Christian mm-hmm. traditions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hate the word pagan, but I didn't say it. Did I say word. that? I didn't. Yeah, say Yeah, I that. said it. <laughs> I said it. I was the one who said it. Um, but I wish we could come up with a different word for it. But um, so I didn't even really know that what I was doing was forest bathing. I was sick at the time with a very confusing illness, um, and I just needed to go outside and. It was, I can't explain it any other way, is just this one particular tree just told me to come to it. I hadn't even ever really spent time. At, it was. It's in Dumberton Oaks Parks Conservancy in Georgetown. Mm-hmm. I'd never really spent time there, and it was almost like I was magnetically pulled there to sit under this tree. And when I was there, everything just felt fine, just profoundly okay. And when, you know, the whole base of my world was getting ripped apart, my career, my health, um, this was a place that was really kind to me, and so flash. F- so I kept doing that because it felt great. It was different from hiking, um, which is also great, but I couldn't hike at the time. And so flash forward a couple of years, you know, mystical journey to how I did this. Uh, a Facebook targeted ad mm-hmm. told me, um, "Did you know that there's such a thing as a professional forest bathing guide?" And my first thing was like forest bathing. I'm pretty sure I know what that is already. And second, yes, I would like to become <laughs> a professional guide. I didn't know that was a career option, and so I signed right up. Yes, yeah, that. I see. <laughs> so first thing I saw, for of course, yeah, because my mind is always in the gutter. The first thing I thought when I saw forest bathing, I was like, this is awesome, man. I'm going to run out in the forest, take off all my clothes, and jump in the water. Like, this is the most amazing thing in the world. Like, I can't wait to do this. And then, of course, like, I, I went a little further and was like, no, that's not what forest bathing is, asshole. It can be. <laughs> it can be. Um, and I can't tell you how many walks that I've led that people have brought their swimsuits, including an NPR reporter. Yeah. Um, an NPR reporter, you know, at the end of the walk, she had, uh, it was somebody else was guiding it. Um, Melanie Chukas Bradley was guiding this walk. And at the end of the report, the the NPR reporter, she took out her bathing suit and was like, so when do we put these on? And we were like, oh, oops. So I've actually had to put in w- mm-hmm. the things that I send out to people, like, you don't need a swimsuit. And in fact, it's winter. You should wear a lot of clothes. I'm glad I'm not the only Luddite out there that, that thought it I was going to be swimming. It happens all the time. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So it actually comes because of the Japanese word for it. Shinjin yoku uh, translates to um, bathing in the forest atmosphere. Mm. So is it? So it is a. It's a Japanese tradition, or is there? Mm-hmm. Are there many traditions? I mean, um, it's we pull it from the Japanese tradition, mm-hmm. um, Shinjin yoku, uh, which is the ancient ancient practice from the 1980s. I mean, it's as old as time, right? Sure. Humans love being in nature, um, and you know we love sitting in nature uh, more than I ever even realized. I thought that people were going to like roll their eyes out of their head when I started telling them about this, but I have faced almost no cynicism in a very cynical city. Um, but turns out everybody loves trees. Um, so in the 1980s, and what did ever tree ever do to you? You know what I mean? It's hard to hate a tree. It is hard to hate a tree. Yeah. And if you hate a tree, uh, there's probably another tree that's that's good for you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's another tree, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the 1980s um, 
people in Tokyo were really stressed out, which might sound familiar to people in D.C. Mm-hmm. And the prefectures in Japan um, very quickly figured out this was a great tourism opportunity for them. And so they had people start coming out to their prefectures doing this force bathing, the Shinjin-yoku. And because the Japanese public health system is really good, it's the system that we base a lot of our health statistics on, they started doing research pretty much from the beginning and found out very quickly that evidence matches up to what we know intrinsically that being out in nature is good for us, Mm -hmm. being immersed in our senses, which in yoga we call that pratyahara. Sometimes it's withdrawal of the senses, but we can't really withdraw from our senses without first using them, knowing what they are Mm -hmm. and feeling them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So what do you, so what's involved? Tell us, is it, Tell us what's involved. In yeah, it. yeah. So on a walk, um, I'll orient you to the land so you know a little bit of the story of the land and what is there for you to be careful for because it's not meant to be um, one of those wholesome sort of things where it's really hard for a little while and you get better at it or you, you know, get more resilience because you did a hard thing like being with your feelings and whatnot. It's very invitational, and we do put some emphasis on noticing what you enjoy, noticing what's pleasurable, because we don't get that a lot nowadays. Um, We're often taught to notice what's hard, and we have our own human negativity bias, of course. Um, So we do invite people. So we start out orienting people to the land, and then I take them through their senses. So we'll look around and notice who's there, who are we with, what are the colors and textures, And then we'll start to go through the different senses beyond just the classic Aristotelian five senses into even the imaginal um, kinesthesia, proprioception. Mm -hmm. How do you feel your body in space? Um, Even maybe even a heart sensing. Science is described, depending on which scientist you're talking about or talking to, you know, somewhere between 14 to 16, 17 different senses. Um, So there's a lot to work with from there. I guide people through invitations, which are just that, um, because you can reject an invitation. The idea is that I don't want to impose an experience. I'm not here to tell you this is magical or mm-hmm. this is that or the other. You know, for some people, it's just they're going to go outside and that's going to be, you know, they're going to look around and that's going to be their thing. Some people are going to have this deep, deep experience. Whatever they're there to have is, is mm-hmm. what I want them to have. So I guide them through invitations. Some of them we walk very slowly noticing what's around us and then um, we might notice what communication is in this place um, what it's like to listen in this place to develop a relationship with the beings in this place um, the more than human beings uh, because and it's a sneaky sneaky form of activism Mm -hmm. we climate change is real (laughs) and one of the challenges of that is most of us don't have a very good solid relationship with the natural world we know of it and we can describe it but there's a big difference between if I hand you my bio Mm -hmm. and then sitting down with me and getting to know me you know you can know me in one way but it's much more intimate if you're with me if you see if I can see the way your eyes crinkle or the way your face looks this way or the way that you listen there's a very different intimacy in that Mm -hmm. so guiding people into that relationship um that becomes its own form of activism because we take care of what we know. We take care of who we know. Yeah. Um, and so then we end every walk 
with a tea ceremony that from plants that are I foraged locally um, from a safe place um, and a place that if there are any like you know National Park Service or people like that involved, it's always in a place where I have permission to pick. Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea is then taking in the medicine of the forest in a very literal way. And it's also bringing people back to transition them back into the real world. Yeah. So that they're not often their la la land. Yeah. And trying to go and navigate traffic. Yeah, it sounds like a powerful yoga right there. Because I mean what you're doing is you're, you're actually trying to get people to be present, you know, in many, 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 many different ways. And uh, yeah. that's, you know, in a lot of ways, what, you know, it's one of the classic definitions of yoga is to be present uh, and to concentrate on what's going on, you know, right now. Yeah, and to find how you belong in this space so um, that it's not just you versus... We think of the natural world as a place to go to, but we're always in nature. We're breathing air right now. We're in nature. We're nailing it, doing a great job. (laughs) But people think that they have to have this go and like huge immersive experience and then they've they've been taught leave no trace. You know, you don't belong here. Right. Um, Whereas if we can be out there learning how we're part of this web of interconnection, which sounds a lot like yoga, this interconnectivity, um, it becomes a very almost practical living experience of that, of, you know, even just sitting with a tree, there's, it's, you know, one thing to say that there's a reciprocity, but there's a very literal one. Trees poop carbon dioxide. That is the thing that they excrete, you know, if you want to go science mm-hmm. um, and you know one of the things that we uh, or they excrete oxygen there we go yeah thank you I understood what you're saying science <laughs> um, and you know one of the things that's a byproduct of our metabolism is carbon dioxide and so every time you're breathing in you're receiving this gift and every time you're breathing out you're breathing out you're contributing mm-hmm. and if that sounds I don't know what else sounds like yoga mm-hmm. no that's exactly it um, and one of the things a lot of yoga people I don't think understand that well is that uh, is listening and not really like is it's that old you ever see the movie white man can't jump yeah okay there's that I big s- there's that a big movie. there's a big scene where um, they're debating about Jimi Hendrix and 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 Wesley Snipes is saying well, yeah you can hear Jimmy you can listen to Jimi Hendrix but you can't hear Jimi Hendrix like he's like because you know you don't understand like you know what are you talking about like the whole you know his whole like backing group were white and you know there's this big big funny discussion but that difference between like hearing something and then really listening mm-hmm. right we hear lots of things but are we really listening yeah. right and there you couldn't in a lot of ways you couldn't be more present than when you're listening to someone or something or it doesn't actually have to be with your ears either it can be you know you can listen with your eyes you can listen with your touch i mean there's different ways if you're receiving right information as the thing it is rather than your projection of what you want it to be. Mm -hmm. Right. And that can be really super powerful. Yeah. And I think it's the sort of thing that we can talk about all day, but really, and, and the interesting thing is so often I'm asked to come and lecture on this. And what I'm almost always saying is, yes, I can give this lecture, but it's just going to be better if you experience it. If you are thirsty you can read all you want about how to quench your thirst, but it will never be as satisfying as taking a sip. Taking a glass of water, yeah. Yeah, and one of the 
tricky parts about navigating this is that you become more sensitive in a, in a world where that is not well suited for the sensitive. Um, if we walk around the city, you know, where I experience this the most is in New York City. New York City smells gross. I'm sorry, New York, you know you smell gross. It smells like pee and garbage. Um, and there's a little puddles that have like rainbows in them. And when I was young, I grew up in New York City and I used to think to myself, oh, it's so cute. There's a rainbow in the puddle. And like what I really didn't realize, of course, is it's like it's every chemical that's ever been spilled on the pavement of New York, like glistening back at me. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the challenge that it's which is exactly right. And so then we turn off that sense of like once you realize it, it's like, oh, that is not information that I want right now. And so we start to turn those senses off. You know, I don't want to smell pee all the time. Um, and so then, you know, when I go to this practice of whether it's yoga and being in my body or whether it's being out in nature where I'm also being in my body, but then becoming more aware, when I come back to the, the world that's less um, calibrated for the sensitive, it can be really jarring for me. Um, you know, when I'm coming out of a, a nature experience, I hear every single siren. I hear every single helicopter, the way that mm -hmm. I've just heard every single bird chattering. And so that can be a little bit tricky to sort of deal with. And what I wish is that more people went out and experienced this so that they had um, the idea of then when they come back, like, maybe we don't need to turn up every single noise. Maybe, you know, we don't. Maybe there's ways that we can make our world a little more appealing to turn our sensitivity back on and to make it a, an experience mm -hmm. where sensitivity can be welcome. Yeah. Um, any resources you really like online, otherwise books for yoga, forest bathing, could be anything that you want to recommend to people out there, students, yeah. yogis, et cetera? Um, so it's interesting because a lot of my knowledge, I know I'm supposed to plug a lot of different people here, and I will in just a second, but I have to say personally, most of my, while I've done a lot of academic learning through books, um, most of my wisdom traditions have come down to me orally or Instagramally. <laughs> it's okay um, to admit that. Yeah, I'm You're no less a yogi because you, you know, yeah. I love me some Instagram. Yeah. Um, but I, I will put a plug in for um, my one of my teachers, my mentors, Melanie Chukas Bradley. Um, she wrote The Joy of Forest Bathing, mm -hmm. which takes you through the seasons. Um, let's see. Uh, one of my friends, Trina Altman, will have a book coming out later this year. Jules Mitchell has a book coming out that I'm really excited for. Mm -hmm. um, can't wait for it. Um, yeah, the book that I'm reading right now is about the Holocaust, so <laughs> it's not a good one to recommend. I tend not to read self-help books ever because they make me really anxious. Um, I read them and immediately start thinking like, oh, God, I need to be a better person. Um, so I tend to read a lot of fiction or nonfiction about true crime. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right, more maybe most importantly, how can people find you? Yeah, one day, one day, everyone, I will have a website. <laughs> Today will not be that day, but the best places Listeners, are... you have no idea how hard it was to get in touch with Claire, actually. No, it wasn't. Uh, no, but it, it kind of is, was, if yeah. you ever try and get in touch with me. So I don't even really do... E I, I really don't like being on email. Um, it's just, it's a pain in the ass, and I, I just don't like it, and I've got some neurological differences that make it tricky. So it is actually really hard to get in touch with me, but call me. Um, I'm not going to say my name, um, or my... No. Phone don't. number on the air, but uh, 
if I want you to call me, I will give you a way to find out how to call me. But then the best way is either on Facebook, mm. um, spelling both of my names right, C-L-A-R-E-K-E-L-L-E-Y. Um, you can look at DC Forest Bathing on Facebook or I'm on Instagram at The Claire Life. You have to spell Claire the right way, the Irish way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and then come to my classes. Come find me in person. I love most of all being in person with people. Come to my walks. Yeah. That's so cool. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, it was great to have you on the show, Claire. Thanks so much for having me. This has been such a pleasure. Yeah, it's great. Um, all right. So you've been listening to the DC Yoga Podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Chris Parkinson. Um, if you like what you hear today, please give us a rating uh, either on iTunes or a thumbs up on uh, SoundCloud and uh, subscribe for us. Until next time, take care. <laughs>